Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of CMEC. As we approach Christmas, many of us are wrestling with mixed emotions. Happiness at the prospect of Christmas with loved ones, but also continuing horror at the conflict in occupied Palestinian territories. And even in the holiest places of all, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, we have seen tension and strife, both in our occupied Palestinian territories, which have witnessed an upsurge in settler violence against Palestinians and raids by Israeli troops on refugee camps and villages. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by someone with a keen eye both on the Christmas message and what is happening in Jerusalem and elsewhere at the time of this conflict. The very Reverend Richard Sewell is the Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, and he joins me from there. Richard, welcome, and please tell us a bit more about your role and the work you do in Jerusalem. Well, hello, Charlotte, and I'm really pleased to be able to be with you. I'm speaking to you from St George's College in Jerusalem, just a quarter of a mile from Damascus Gate, so very near the old city of Jerusalem. And I'm the Dean of the College, which is the Anglican Centre for Pilgrimage in Jerusalem. It was actually founded over 100 years ago and was intended to be the theological college to train Palestinian clergy when the Anglican Church was sort of in its early years of being founded. But that really never came to fruition. And so it gradually developed a ministry as a sort of a Holy Land theological centre where clergy would come and lay people, but initially mostly clergy, to learn about the land, the archaeology, the history, the Bible in context, and increasingly the people, all the people of the Holy Land, Christians, Jews and the Muslims. And then in the last 30 years, it's become really almost exclusively a pilgrim centre and we receive up to 450 pilgrims per year from all over the mostly English-speaking world who come to make their pilgrimage with us. And we provide a whole program between 10 days, 14 days of a sort of a deep dive pilgrimage. It's not like the get in as many holy sites as you can, like some pilgrim tours are. We go quite deeply and our senior teacher has a PhD in pilgrimage and knows the land extremely well. And because we are rooted in the Anglican church here, we are rooted in the people of the land. So people don't stay in hotels around Jerusalem or elsewhere. They stay with us in the community, which is the Anglican church here, which is 95% Palestinian. And that's who we are and what we do. So often and very sadly, especially since this conflict has erupted since Hamas's terror attack on October the 7th, we are looking increasingly at the Jewish community and the Muslim community. And many, it's easy to forget that there is a significant Christian community in Jerusalem and significant Christian heritage. What's the Christian population of Jerusalem like? Is it shrinking? What's the status? Yes, it is shrinking, tragically, like so many Christian communities throughout the Middle East. In 1948, at the foundation of the State of Israel, it's estimated there were just over 20% of the whole population who were Christians. But gradually over time, that has diminished and diminished for a variety of reasons, partly because Christians have the lowest birth rate, but more significantly because Christians have sought a better life elsewhere in the world, and perhaps more than the majority Muslim community amongst Palestinians, 
they have had the best opportunities to move through their high level of education and through links and connections in many different parts of the world. So now we, we really are barely 2% of the whole population and Anglicans obviously are a minority of that. So our diocese, which actually covers a number of countries, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine and Israel, we reckon probably 15 to 18,000 Anglicans in all of those countries. But even if you put all the Christians together, excluding the Messianic Christians who really have no part of us, they don't really want to be with Palestinian Christians and don't strongly identify as Christians. They're Messianic Jews. So we don't count them in our numbers. We are really a small and very vulnerable minority in many ways. Has it become harder to be a Christian in in the region? Um, it has in, in many ways, but in Israel, Christians have certain rights and privileges and freedoms, which maybe you can't take for granted in every country, certainly not in every country of the Middle East. So there is a, a theoretical and in many ways a practical freedom of religion in Israel, but also Palestinians since the founding of the nation state law are sort of second-class citizens because their first language of Arabic is no longer treated as a as a formal language. It, it is just an additional language. And other discriminations are experienced, some quite significant. But of course, if you look at the whole land, Israel and Gaza, which is occupied by Israel, then Christians, along with all Palestinians, are experiencing an increasingly difficult, challenging and oppressed lifestyle where their you know, basic human rights are denied to them, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, protection under law. You know, homes can be demolished. You can be made homeless without recourse to legal cases in many ways. So Christians, along with Muslims, are subject to those sorts of restricted freedoms much as those things are debated across the community, across the world, but this is our experience. There's a move generally across democracies, across Europe and America, to see more right-wing governments emerging. Is that increased pressure on being a Christian? Has that got anything to do with the tendency for governments and the Israeli government to move in that direction? What's the cause? Well, the cause is, you know, increasing polarisation, not just between Israelis and Palestinians, not just between Jews, Muslims, Christians, but within the Jewish community itself in Israel, increasing polarization, which, as you say, is reflected across the world, certainly in, in Europe. And the, the left side of politics, for instance, the Labour Party, the party of Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin, has totally collapsed. This is as a result of a sort of loss of belief and hope in the peace process following the collapse of the Oslo Accords. So the, the politics all shifted to the right because there is no effective left. And that has opened up possibilities for an extreme right wing form, radical right wing, you'd almost say Jewish supremacists. And some of those now in Netanyahu's government, even before the, the war coalition, actually probably more so before the war coalition, incorporates people on the 
extreme right, racist right names are familiar. You know, people know about Bezalel, Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir, and they are not the only ones. They are the best known of the far right. And they have pushed Netanyahu, whereas Netanyahu might previously have been seen as sort of on the strong right, now is the moderating force in his own government because he has gone into coalition with seriously worrying politicians who, who are pandering, who are ultimate populists and pandering to the basest instincts of Jewish people in Israel who basically say they've had enough. They're not prepared to want to live alongside Palestinians and are, are looking for them to leave or to be constrained in parts of the land that Jews don't have to move into at all. Hello, I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm the director of CMEC. And the very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell is the Dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem, and he joins me from there. Are we seeing an escalation then, do you think, of extremist beliefs and tendencies? Does one extreme cultivate and encourage another extreme on the other side? I'm thinking of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Is that a recruiting tool? It certainly is a recruiting tool. And and I think, you know, radical Islam has a sort of trajectory of its own. We've seen that, you know, ever since the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood in the 40s and 50s in Egypt, and then, of course, the, the rise of radical Islam in, in Iran and in other parts, the, more recently, the rise of ISIS. And so that, that, that is the macro picture of Islam. And, of course, the Muslim communities in Israel and Palestine are not unaffected by that. But then when you add the particular dimension of the policies of the state of Israel to occupy large chunks of the land and deny fundamental human rights to Palestinians, that feeds into that narrative of a conflict-driven extreme form of Islam, which is can be expressed in forms of extreme violence, of, of hatred, and of the destruction of, of anything and everything that stands in its way. But I think when you add to that the taking away of any sort of viable pathway to a better life for Palestinians, so in the collapse of the Oslo Accords, really nothing has been put in its place. And the Netanyahu government has increasingly approved massive settlement building in the West Bank. So now there are in excess of 700,000 illegal Jewish settlers in the West Bank, which creates massive tensions and day-to-day -day extreme difficulties for ordinary Palestinian people living in, in villages, living a sort of agricultural shepherding type of lifestyle who really want to have no trouble, no fuss, no bother with anybody, but are having their olive groves ripped up, burnt out, that the shepherds can be abused, shot at, sometimes killed by sort of small marauding groups of Jewish settlers who are going out to make life difficult for their neighboring Palestinian villages. So when you take away any prospect of a pathway to peace, so Hamas is Hamas in Gaza, but Fatah in the West Bank have taken a very different stance to Hamas. 
But Israel has not fostered that and said, look, if you take this line, which is respecting the right of the state of Israel to exist and you're prepared to cooperate with us, there will be benefits and we can move down a line. That has not happened. You know, the Palestinians in the West Bank have barely fared any better than the Palestinians in Gaza. A little bit better. There are significant differences, but not with any realistic pathway to the idea of independence, of statehood, of living their life with those fundamental human rights being honoured and respected. So that when you put all of those factors together, you are looking at um, the sort of narrative of Hamas being increasingly attractive to young Muslim men who don't want to put up with this sort of treatment and are looking for a narrative that gives them dignity and an optimism about the future when things will be much, much better. And that can feed a sort of extremist form of Islam. Sorry, very long answer. But, you know, these things are complex and multidimensional, not, not simple answers, of course. And I think our listeners will probably know that explaining what leads to terror atrocities is in no way justification for them. Not at all. Looking at now, we can't escape what's happened since the terror attacks, which were horrific on October the 7th, and the response. And now daily, and because we live in a world of social media, we're seeing the most horrendous images of of children, dead children being pulled out of rubble and We dread to think how many other thousands are still under that rubble. What is the effect of witnessing that trauma and that horror having on the population that you're living amongst so close to Gaza? Charlotte, when you describe those two things, you know, both events are having the most profound impact on people's day to day lives, their emotions their mental well-being, their physical well-being. You know, obviously people being bombed in Gaza, I mean, that that is beyond description of what they are having to endure and what the communities and the Gaza envelope experience, the horrendous trauma of those brutal, unbelievable attacks upon those communities and the people actually in the front line of all of that. Everybody, you know, nobody could have any question they are profoundly traumatized and people close to them, families, relatives, friends. But there is no one in this land who is unaffected by all of that, whether they know people personally involved or who've died or who are hostages. Everybody has a story that connects them to somebody experiencing that trauma on the Jewish side, on the Palestinian side. And so people are managing the most intense emotions. And of course, it also feeds into a history of trauma, which Jews will look back to the Holocaust for. You know, so many Jewish people living in Israel have family who died in the gas chambers. And that is part of their personal narrative. And Everybody in Palestine has stories of the Nakba, the catastrophe that affected the Palestinian communities in 1947-48 at the founding of the State of Israel. So it's, it's both historical trauma of those stories of death and destruction, of losing home and not knowing where you're going to live and how you can build a life, so that these events bring up a sort of a historical memory of 
pain and trauma and absolute total fear. So the the mix of all of that, uh, you know, and even I, who have no experience of the Holocaust, no experience of the Nakba, but I live amongst people who do feel this extraordinary intensity of emotion where tears are never far from my my eyes, takes very little to, to bring them to the surface, where stories, you know, I mean, barely an hour goes by in my life when talking to my Palestinian staff or uh, in a restaurant or a cafe or in the street, just where I go and buy things. Something will come up all the time about the war. We can't escape it. We dream about it. We wake up to it. We see it in every moment of the news. So we are living in this extraordinarily intense experience, and it makes it very difficult to talk about it with others. So people, if you don't know that people are going to agree with you, you won't talk about it because it's it's too painful, it's too raw, and yet we all have to talk about it because we're trying to process it, trying to work out what it means. But it, then when it feeds into politics, it feeds even greater polar extremities and we need people around the world to help us to talk about these things in ways that are thoughtful compassionate profoundly empathetic and that look for the truth and the value in the other side that we perhaps don't feel an affinity with rather than ramping up the intensity and using words of hatred and of utter condemnation for people, not those who are in the front line of killing and hating and raping and, you know, all those other awful things, but the people on the edges of those things. And of course, we we see that, I see that being reported in the UK in the ways that these things are, are experienced, debated, and even in, you know, the words of our politicians, that sometimes the words used to describe what's going on simply pour kerosene onto the fire. And it's so deeply unhelpful. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm the director of CMEC. And the very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell is the Dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem, and he joins me from there. And I think since... The events of the Holocaust, Second World War, we've learned an awful lot more about trauma, about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and mental health. And it seems that from a onlooker, you, you've got a collection of people on both sides who are collectively suffering the same kind of trauma that an individual will suffer with displaying similar symptoms of PTSD. Is that a fair analysis? And do you think there's more that politicians can do to take what we know about psychological healing, treatment for PTSD, understanding of the of the condition, and apply that to geopolitical issues? Gosh, I think that's really on the edge of my ability to speak sensibly about it. But I, I think acknowledging that this is a part of the reality is important. And to, to understand when you're talking to people from these lands or who have close relatives in these lands, that a, a degree of that PTSD is going to come through in what people say and do. And so I think a lot of listening is really helpful rather than telling people that they're wrong in what they think or feel. You know, of course, we have to have a robust debate about these things, but but when you're talking to people coming straight out of trauma, you don't start dismantling their 
their perceptions and their arguments, you first of all take the time to listen and to try to understand their experience. Of course, people don't have to agree with everything, but the sort of usual debate that goes on in, in social media and perhaps goes on in the House of Commons at times needs to be moderated to realise that people are dealing with high, high levels of deep anxiety and pain, fear and anger. You know, I keep saying to people, there is no one in this land who is not sad, frightened and angry. And that is just where we are. You know, it may be beneath the surface more for some people than for others. And some emotions may be more prevalent than others. But those things are across the board. And that's not really the best place to try and make really great political decisions when those emotions may be driving what you are saying and doing. And it needs the perspective of people one or two steps away to help people to, you know, maybe process some of those more extreme forms of reaction without patronizing people and say, you know, when you've calmed down a little bit, you might be able to think straighter. That would be deeply unhelpful. But realizing that asking the question, well, where do we go from here? That's probably not where most people are at the moment when there are still hostages being held and men, women and children being bombed out of their homes and in supposedly safe areas. That things are so raw still right now that many people can't really totally think straight. We're in the run-up to Christmas, um, a time when we traditionally talk about light coming into the world. That's the story, whatever your particular faith, that's that's what the story is about for many. We read that Christmas in Bethlehem has been cancelled. How will you be celebrating, sounds the wrong word, but how will you be marking Christmas and how can you celebrate when it seems such very dark times? Well, I really don't like the headline that Christmas is cancelled because it isn't cancelled. Nothing actually can cancel Christmas because it is the annual celebration of the gift of Christ into the world that we see as a, a child born in Bethlehem. The, what, what the headline is trying to grab at is that the heads of churches here announced a month, six weeks ago, that our usual festivities were cancelled. Christmas lights in public places would not be switched on. That, are, you know, the party festivities, which are part of the Christian community's experience here as much as they are in, in any parts of the United Kingdom or elsewhere in, in Europe, we would not be doing those sort of jolly, jovial, celebratory things, and that we would concentrate more on the spiritual core of the message, which in a way is a great thing to focus on anyway, because that is the whole reason for it. But it means that, you know, we're, we're in a state of mourning and you can't celebrate in the same way as if a close member of your family died in these last few weeks when you come to Christmas, you know, Wearing party hats and blowing party poppers, you know, would probably not be done. It certainly wouldn't be in my family if if a close member of my family had died. And the whole community, Christian community, is in that state of mind. So we we may have, we will have private sort of festivities. A Christmas tree might go up at home, you know, for all of us, but especially for the children and presents will be given and shared 
in many homes, not in every home. So uh, we will have our midnight mass, we will have our Christmas Day services, and Christians will come out, make an effort. I am pretty sure even in Gaza, that those few Christians that are there gathered in the Church of St. Porphyrius, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Church of the Holy Family in Gaza City, will find a way to celebrate and light candles and proclaim the gift of the saviour of the world born in Bethlehem. I'm pretty certain they will find a way to do that. So even in Gaza, Christmas is not cancelled, but it's different. It feels so restrained and none of the beautiful Christmas trees that are normally up, well, in the cathedral close here at St. George's, but more especially in the old city, that some of them tower over on the rooftops of the churches and the Christian schools. They're not there. Up in Nazareth, which normally has the largest Christmas tree in the land, that's not being put up and therefore the lights aren't on. And most significantly of all, the huge Christmas tree and the nativity scene in Manger Square in Bethlehem, the beautiful lights that normally adorn the Basilica of the Nativity will not be lit. And uh, we will be there, God willing, inshallah, on Christmas Eve. Uh, and it won't feel the same. But we will still visit the place of Jesus' birth in the grotto beneath the Basilica. We will still sing our carols, but with a different sort of poignancy you know, I think when we sing, yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It will have a special power because we feel that darkness enfolding us in a bad way, not just in the ways of winter where lighting a candle in winter just feels comforting. We feel we're surrounded by a darkness which, without wanting to exaggerate, is a kind of evil. And so we proclaim the gospel to, to bring the light of beauty and truth and hope and comfort in a visceral way, more so than perhaps ever before. So Christmas is not cancelled. Christmas will be proclaimed with an added intensity and a poignancy that, that words won't be able to do justice to. Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, thank you very much indeed, and all our wishes with you all for Christmas. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte.